Dr. Donald Kabarukasa served two five-year terms as president of the African Development Bank, during which time the bank's capital tripled and its portfolio doubled. Prior to this, he served as Rwanda's Minister of Finance and Economic Planning, overseeing the country's economic reconstruction after the end of the Civil War. In February, as part of the Australasian Aid Conference, Dr Kabaruka gave the 2019 Mitchell Oration on Africa and the Global Landscape, Emerging Trends and the Way Forward. It's a pleasure to be in Australia. It's my first time. I almost came here. And the last minute, uh, I didn't come, and I'll tell you why. Australia applied to join the African Development Bank when I was still the leader of the bank. We were excited. We were all very excited. Because Africa and Australia are separated by long distances, but we are linked by very strong human factors which often are invisible, whether it is uh, missionaries, faith groups, students, Australians of African origin, many people from these islands who live in Africa and so on. And so when Australia applied to join the African Development Bank and went through all the legal processes, we were very excited. And the then Prime Minister invited me uh, to Brisbane. And I had booked my tickets. And then something happened in Australian politics. <laughs> that is not for me to comment. <laughs> and the next government sent me a letter apologizing that uh, Australia had other priorities for the moment. And so I canceled my visit. I, however, remain convinced that at some point in the future, that decision could be uh, reconfirmed. And when I was invited to come here, I came here to convince you, to speak to you, that yes, Australia is an Indo-Pacific power. You are not a superpower, but you are a power. But beyond that, you are a major global player, not simply in the G20, but in terms of the other factors which I want to describe today. It is extremely important that Australia plays its role in this region, as it should. But beyond that, it is critically important that Australia plays a strategic role globally, which it deserves and should play. And that's why it got me here, never mind uh, the cold uh, which I have uh, today. So I want to thank Steve for inviting me and the, and the center at the university. Yesterday I met uh, many of my colleagues, African diplomats here. I want to thank you for coming and for the work uh, you do, uh, because I do believe that this is a common uh, undertaking we have to do uh, together. I learned yesterday they have got uh, 500,000 Australians of African origin, of African descent. I know for a fact that in many peacekeeping missions in the African theatres, many Afri Australian men and women uh, are there in many of those uh, 
theaters. I know many African students who are here in different universities uh, exchanging knowledge with you. So I'm here to make a case. I don't know whether I will succeed, but I will try. I will try, and this is why it is important for me and others who are here like me. I'm sure there is general agreement today that something is not right with the world we are living in today, irrespective of which part of the world you are from. Something is broken with the multilateral system we have known since World War II. Refined, of course, in subsequent years in different ways, but something is definitely very wrong. And it cannot be resolved by simply functioning. Something has to change. Now, since 1945, there have been attempts to fine-tune that order in the following way. The United Nations in 1945, which was formed to bring the, to the end the world of conflict, of course dominated by a few members of the Security Council, has not succeeded. It has succeeded to prevent a global war but has not succeeded to prevent localized conflict, which has decimated millions. And over time, the solutions we have had, which are peacekeeping, have not worked. And this is why. Peacekeeping presupposes there's a conflict between two states, and that those two states reach a peace treaty which has to be then observed, supervised by neutral powers. But there are some conditions for that to succeed. Number one, those forces had to be neutral between the two parties. They had to be invited by both parties to the conflict. And they had to be minimal use of force. The kind of conflicts we have had since then, maybe with the exception of the conflict between India and Pakistan, and a few others, Israel and Syria, have been conflicts within the state or what you call within the state and non-state asymmetrical actors for which the peacekeeping doctrine cannot function. There have been attempts by many sectors of the UN to try and deal with this matter, but it remains outstanding. And I'll come to it and tell you what is important. Because these asymmetrical conflicts are not limited to Africa, to Latin America, or to Southeast Asia. They are conflicts which can erupt anywhere on planet Earth. But there was a second attempt in the 1970s during the uh, energy crisis, global energy crisis. Then the major powers formed what was known as the G7, the most important economies, the G7. Subsequently became the G7 plus one. I think subsequently G8. I don't know if it's now G8 minus one, I'm not sure. <laughs> but there was an attempt by those countries to deal with that crisis at the time. It worked for a while. But fast forward to the global financial crisis. 
Even the G7 or G7 plus one or G8 was not fit for purpose. So a new informal group, the G20, was formed, of which Australia is a member. My judgment is that at the beginning, this group was extremely effective. The global economy was at a near-death experience, and this particular grouping took measures which limited the damage and set us on a path where, hopefully, this thing could be avoided uh, in the future. But it's obvious to some of us that uh, from those told reforms of the UN, even the Bretton Woods institutions, we now need a different approach, uh, collective action on things from climate change, epidemics, security, trade and migration. The instruments at our disposal for collaboration are much weaker than they have been at any point since 1945. And yet, as the minister was saying, in 2015, the world came together. Uh, I think someone mentioned this here. And we elaborated a charter, the Sustainable Development Goals, of the, the kind of world we needed. Economic, social, protection of the planet, etc. That charter was a charter no longer between the rich and the poor, which was the Millennium Development Goals, not between the East and West, not between the North and South, not between developed and developing countries, not between the emerging and low-income countries. It was a charter for humanity together irrespective of where you live and how much wealth you have. It was a charter which created a lot of expectations. So, but where did you go from there? Just a year later, in many countries, suddenly, just a year later, elections in a number of countries, in the so-called rich countries, and we have now unilateralism, protectionism, not to say isolationism. We now have a narrow nationalism where the populist electorates asking their governments, uh, wait a minute, globalization is not working for me. And it is a fault to begin with foreigners, including migrants. That kind of narrative has given birth to a new class of political uh, actors who have made it difficult for the implementation of the Charter of 2015. Now, despite this pressure for zero-sum games, you win, I lose, or my country first, or even my country alone, do we have to throw away the baby with the water? Or even the baby with the bathtub in the water? Can you acknowledge the failings, the, the, first of all, the achievements of globalization, which has reduced poverty around the world, 
lifted millions out of misery, including especially in this region and including Africa. But we have also to acknowledge the failures of globalization, which now I'm told is called globalism, whatever that means. Now, what were the two main failures of uh, globalization? I think number one is that globalization benefits were not well distributed between and within nations. Something nowadays called inequality, just to use the acronym. It is a challenge we must face in Australia, in Asia, in America, in Europe, everywhere. We have to handle these issues of those who believe that, yes, globalization is working, but not for me. But there's been a second weakness of globalization, which has been that the pain of globalization have not been well managed. After 1945, whatever you say of the welfare states, whatever you say of the mis issues with social policy, there were attempts to deal with the pains of globalization. I think we have to accept that there have been failures in how we deal with the pains of globalization. I'm saying this because I do believe part of what, uh, Steve, you call aid policy. Incidentally, I have an issue with, with that one. I'm hoping next time I come, it won't be Australian aid policy. It probably will have another name, and I'll come to it. Because probably the time for uh, that kind of policies has evolved. But I'll come to it near the end of my remarks. But there was an attempt, both within nations, to have social policies which manage the pains of globalization, and between nations to manage the pains of globalization, and international development was one of them. And let us be honest, it is not working at the moment. Now, for those who believe that we can go back to isolationism, my country first, or my country only, we have been there before. All they have to do is to read economic history. We have been there before in the 1930s, and it ended in disaster. And of course, it cannot work. It cannot work because epidemics don't know borders. Epidemics don't end up in the Indo-Pacific area. Terrorism does not end up in the Middle East. Climate change is not a phenomenon of any particular region. It affects some more than others. Managing migration is not an issue between the North and the South. It's an issue within our countries and between countries. I'm sure for many of you who live in this region, when you read uh, the news about migrants between Africa and Europe, you have been feeling that the level of migration between Europe and Africa has increased. It has not. In fact, the biggest migration within the African continent is within the African continent. The level of migrants leaving Africa to Europe is at the same level as it was in 1990. You're welcome to go to look at figures. So, in dealing with migration, 
We're talking about migration within regions, within continents, between the continents. And it is not something you can handle within a particular region alone. We are talking together, and it is possible it can be done. So I'm here to, to argue that probably at a time like this, when, for example, global trade, uh, I'm sure Masudi will be saying that tomorrow, global trade at the beginning of 2018 was growing at about 5%. By the time uh, at Christmas, end of the year, it had flattened out. It was growing at 0%. I don't know where the numbers are now. It cannot be. These are challenges we have to deal with within countries, within the group of so-called rich countries, poor countries, east or west. These are challenges we have to face together. It sounds like a new form of conversation, but it's a conversation we must have. And I'm glad to be here today in Australia to try and uh, uh, make that case. Of course, Australia is an Indo-Pacific power. It's a nation power. It's quite right that you focus on your immediate environment. But Australia is a global player. It has to continue to play that role. How that is done is a matter of policy, is a matter of mechanics. Selectivity within the actions of major players is something which is fine. But the idea that uh, we can deal with issues of this region and by indirect effects will contribute to global prosperity is right, but has its own limitations. Let me give you an example. Last time I was checking the number of Australian mining companies in Africa, uh, large and small. The number has been increasing over time. And I like that. Last time I was the largest international mining conference in Cape Town, I found that the number of uh, Australian companies, Chinese companies, were actually increasing the number. I said, this is very good. But why don't we build on this relationship even further? Not simply about extractives, but building the value chains around extractives. What can we learn in terms of sound policies around this particular sector. Now, I don't want to say that our relationship should be built simply around extractives, but you have done very well in this particular area. I mean, your country, according to Steve, has not known a recession for 30 years. You'll have to tell us the miracles. Uh, it must be the great things you do in your policies for which we can learn. It must also something to do with the way you manage your resources and work into them. But having said that, why do I think it is important that we work together? Now, with uh, permission from ambassadors who are here, uh, let me tell you that far too often, when people refer to Africa, especially over the last 15 years, there have been three narratives. Narrative number one, associated with the former prime minister of the UK, around 2003, who said that Africa was a scar on the conscience of the world. I'm not saying that I agree with him, but this is what he said. And he said it in good faith. He was trying to argue for great action to double aid to Africa, 
to increase trade openness. And he was calling, uh, making a moral call that Africa was a, con a scound, the conscience of the world. <coughs> 2003 or 2004, thereabouts. But the same prime minister, about five years later, said, and I quote, Africa is the most exciting place to be in the world today. <laughs> so, and in both cases, he was right, probably. And he happens to be someone I know quite well. So why am I saying this? Uh, you are here kilometers away from Africa. The things you read will be probably from both extremes. One extreme will be Africa, the miserable place, uh, disease burden, poverty, refugees, conflicts. What can we do for that continent? It's a narrative still very strong in the aid narrative. What can we do for them? There's another narrative which started around uh, 2005, thereabouts. It's called uh, Africa Rising. I'm sure you read about that. Which positions it for the first time in 30 years. Africa turned the corner. And for the first time, the real per capita incomes were growing above a population increase. Now, my humble view from my knowledge of that continent is that both are mistaken views. I think the era of exceptionalism for any continent is over. I'll be saying near the end of my uh, conversation with you that I think the narrative that you had uh, poverty in the south, wealth in the north, uh, is probably also coming to its end. The narrative that resources were coming from the north to the south, and by the way, policies as well, also is over. Nowadays, resources are available in the north, in the south, in the east, and the West. And incidentally, even in terms of the policy frameworks, we're no longer sure which part of the world has the best set of policies. We don't know. At least we thought, with the collapse of the Wall of Berlin in 18, 1989, that the communist part of the world had got it wrong. So even a famous American professor wrote a book called The End of History, <coughs> meaning that the liberal world, the neoclassical economics, had won over the state-controlled model. We now know, since the global financial crisis, that even the heart of the neoliberal economic itself had issues to handle. So as we sit here today, we're not sure what is it that constitutes the right policies for a particular country. Just look at around the G20 table, the countries around the table, including Australia, have come to that particular position from different uh, positions. We know what is it that can kill good economic policy. But the answer to what is it that makes for good economic policy outcomes, we don't know. And a lot of the aid industry was built around, we have the resources, 
but also know what is it that you should do to have sound economic outcomes. And I want to suggest to you today that that world probably is over as well. It is the time for us to learn from each other, north, south, east, west, so-called low-income, high-income, emerging markets, their lessons, whether it is dealing with the environment, inequalities, inclusion, all these are issues which are challenges to humanity and which the Sustainable Development Goals uh, attempted to, to handle. But let me quickly add, again, especially with uh, friends of my ambassadors, Africa is not Australia. Uh, we are 55 countries. We have the same challenges. We have a lot of similarities, but we're different. We're 55 countries. In fact, 66% of our populations live in about 70 countries, uh, what we call the regional engines. In the majority of countries, these are very small populations. So we're not, there's no country called Africa. We are a continent. But we're trying to overcome that, and this is what I would like to come to as part of what we can do uh, together. Now, if you read the press nowadays, you'll find uh, probably uh, different ideas of how Africa is doing, but I wanted to say to you that if you excluded probably four, five countries who have particular challenges and with very huge demographic density, the rest of Africa actually is doing quite well. You will not know about it reading the press, but it's doing quite well. Many economies are growing at about 6 to 7%. Outside those few, I can come to later. And which means, if that is sustained, they double their GDP every 10 years. But also a continent with very high demographics, which I'll come to in a moment. So it's not simply enough to grow the economies. You have to grow the economies beyond population increase, you have to grow the economies also creating jobs, not simply expanding uh, the, the national uh, output. We still have many uh, challenges. We don't know how to manage uh, commodity super cycles like you did in Australia. You seem to be doing very well. I would like to find out how you do this. But you seem to have managed on how to deal with the commodity super cycles. We still have issues with sustainability. Some countries make progress and then they fall back, including some of the very large economies which have got huge impacts on the neighborhood. Here you seem to be making progress all the time, hopefully that you continue. We have issues with uh, translating economic growth into jobs, you know, transformation. Because at the end of the day, the issue is not expanding your economy, but ensuring that you're operating high up on the ladder of the global value chains. We still have issues there. We have huge problems with inclusion and inequalities. In some countries, the Gini coefficient is as high as 0.7. I think maybe only Brazil uh, is that high. We are now having a new problem, uh, and this is why I go back to uh, this point I was making at the beginning 
of dealing with security-related challenges emanating from radicalism or radical politics in other parts of the world outside Africa. And it's important I explain this. It is quite possible, even likely, that even a country like Australia, in the not distant future, you'll be handling security-related issues, terrorism-related challenges, not because of what is happening in Australia, but because of challenges elsewhere in the world. We are separated from the Middle East by the stretch of the Red Sea. We have the same peoples across the Middle East and parts of the North Africa. And therefore, some of the security challenges we face are the same. And those have huge impacts uh, on economics, social fabric, uh, uh, development, uh, and everything I don't have to go, time to go into now. But those are not things we can handle uh, alone. But that said, that said, I want to leave you a message that Africa is doing much better than it has done, perhaps for the first time in the last uh, 30 years, uh, except for the issues I've just mentioned. So how are we hoping to, to maintain this progress? Let me mention the first one. Just imagine if Australia, just imagine for once, close your eyes and imagine, that you needed a visa to go to Queensland, that the Northern Australian Territory had its own currency, that Western Australia was another country, that Victoria had its own immigration laws, that across this continent you have five, six currencies. I don't think Australia will be the same. So the first decision which African leaders have made, which in my judgment would be significant for a very long time to come, is the signing of the African Continental Free Trade Area, which will be the largest such area in the world. It has not yet been ratified by all countries, but it has been signed by all countries except four. So we are on the way to getting ratifications and completing uh, this exercise, which will make the African economies almost the same as you do here in Australia. There might be different places, different governments, but there'll be free movement of people, a single air market, and so on. But we don't think this simply about tariffs. It's about non-tariff restrictions, movement of people, single air markets, greater stability, greater cooperation, people-to-people -people contracts. Now, just think if you can succeed, what that will do for the stability of the world. <coughs> the thing, second thing we are doing, <coughs> I was very happy to hear your minister mentioning it here, is about infrastructure. I think she mentioned that uh, your country will be setting up a nation infrastructure fund. That is a very good thing to do. And I want to encourage you to continue. In my years as head of the African Bank, that was almost 60% of what we did. And we are trying everything we can on the African continent to modernize our infrastructure as well. Whether it's railways, airports, maritime ports, uh, IT communication, etc. 
This will bring down the cost of doing business, will expand the size of our markets, and will back up the African continental free trade area. Now, sometimes this means that we work with uh, traditional partners and what is now euphemistically called non-traditional partners usually meant uh, to, to talk about China. I would like to use this opportunity to say that as far as I'm concerned, I think our relationship with China on the issues of infrastructure has been extremely positive. And I would like to say that uh, publicly, it has been extremely positive. It has enabled us to upgrade our infrastructure. Kenya, for example, has upgraded a railway which was 100 years old. It was called the Lunatic Express. Now it is a modern railway. I've written on it, Mr. Ambassador. Same for Ethiopia. Many airports being built around the world, around Africa, pardon. We're working with the traditional partners in Europe and elsewhere uh, to do the same. I think this is something which, uh, from what I heard from your secretary, if you can do the same in this region, it will definitely help boost the economies here. And I want to encourage you to continue. And of course, look beyond the Asia Pacific. One more thing we're doing is on peace and security. Now, I mentioned earlier uh, that uh, between 1945 and now, the way we have responded to security issues and fragility was through the peacekeeping uh, channel. That should continue. I have no problem with it, even though its uh, effectiveness sometimes leaves uh, many issues. So what African leaders have decided to do is that we are going to take responsibility in part for stability and security on our continent. First of all, through the, the continental free trade area, working on these issues of inclusion and inequality, promoting uh, fair societies, but also creating our own Africa Peace Fund. And I was honored uh, two years ago when leaders of Africa asked me to lead the exercise on setting up an Africa uh, Peace Fund. And I want to say to you that at the last meeting of the AUNADIS, we were about $100 million uh, to create that fund. Now, the fund is not meant to supplant what the UN does. It is meant to give us capacity to deal with the crisis upfront. Prevention, mediation, panels of the wise to ensure that crises don't become uh, active conflicts. In this way, we are hoping that we shall be able to contribute once more to an active, uh, an actively uh, promoted peace uh, on the continent. So let me come to, to my end by saying the following. Well, you could say, well, but we're in Australia. We have enough problems of our own. The Indo-Pacific area is already very complicated. Why should we care about what is going on in the African continent? You might be right. But here is uh, my answer to you. 
Africa today is 1.2 billion people. By 2050, Africans will probably be equal to China and India combined. The median age of Africans today is 19 years. By 2050, there'd be one European for every 10 Africans. And I want you to reflect about those numbers and what they mean for all of us in the world. I've not talked about India and Southeast Asia because the numbers in Africa also reflect what is happening in Southeast Asia. We no longer have a world where we could say we are on our own. We're in a world where we have to be searching for strategic relationships as a result of the demographic dynamics of the world. Whether it is security, whether it is economic development, uh, whether it is epidemics. And I want you to reflect about this, especially for the young generation uh, in this room. Now, I'm not saying that uh, human relationships are driven by demographic alone, but they are driven by what those demographics means. I began by mentioning here that uh, there's something nowadays, maybe Masoud will be talking about this uh, tomorrow. Uh, the jargon talk about multipolarity, multipolar world, uh, with all that it means. We'll be living in a world which is completely different from anything we have known in the past. And each part of the world will have to reflect what it means for all of us, for our neighborhood and for us globally. And I want to suggest here that African demographics, demographics of Southeast Asia, will be a major factor in the future development of planet Earth. And I'm sure that an institution like this, you are fully focused uh, on this matter. I want also to add that uh, on this issue of sea uh, uh, Australia aid, uh, part of multipolarity was that in the past, money would go from rich countries, rich governments, to poor governments. But as the minister was saying right now, nowadays governments have less money than private markets. So we'll have to figure out how to use the resources we have within our governments to leverage the money in the private markets to ensure that programs like you have uh, do uh, succeed. So I hope I'm not, I've not been very long, uh, but I thought to leave you just one message that you are doing great things in this region. Australia is a global power focused on the Asia Pacific, but you are a major player in the world. And the world is looking to Australia to play that role in the world beyond your neighborhood. I began by saying that the, uh, when I received the application of Australia to join the African Development Bank, I was very, very excited. Uh, Robert here was working with, with us on that issue. Your former Prime Minister then wrote me a very nice letter. I think the Parliament here had gone through all the motions. Incidentally, for those who are worried about the budget, it was, it was not a lot of money. <laughs> In case you believe, well, Australia was about to just open the check for these Africans. No, 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 no. 
joining these institutions is about uh, what is known in the business as collab capital. Collab means is a guarantee. So suppose you subscribe to be, I don't know, 3% shareholder, and that means half a billion dollars. What actually come out of the uh, taxpayers is less than 6% of that over time. So in terms of the pressure on the budget of Australia, it was very small. The rest was callable capital, which is never called, has never been called. But I think as a result of domestic politics, that did not happen. Why do I think this is important? It is important not because of it, it will be a channel of aid from Australia to Africa, no. It will be a channel to direct trade and investments, people-to-people relationships between Africa and Australia. It will be a channel to go from Australia aid to Australia trade investment in Africa at a very minimal cost to the people of Australia, but a greater benefits for our two continents and for the world. And therefore, I look forward again to your application. <laughs> I'm no longer president of the bank, but as an African, I look forward to ensuring that, as you have done in the Asian Development Bank, as the World Bank, as IMF, you come back so we can work together to go beyond aid, to trade and investment, people-to-people -people relationships, and the handle these global commons I've mentioned, from climate to terrorism, security, and epidemics. I want to thank you for inviting me, and uh, I look forward to what I will learn from this conference in the next two days. Thank you. Thank you so much. No, the floor remains yours. Um, we, we now have, thanks to our speaker's amazing timekeeping, a good amount of time for questions. So just a reminder, we need the microphone, otherwise people outside can't hear you. So who would like to start? Just here. Thanks very much for a fascinating address. I was very glad that you mentioned conflict prevention and and peace building because uh, that's obviously essential and I'm very glad to say that uh, Guterres, the Secretary General of the UN, is pushing very hard that countries adopt conflict prevention as a major part of their policies. Are some African countries taking that seriously and, and can you mention uh, one or two where that's being implemented, please? Thank you. Uh... <laughs> Let me tell you that uh, one of the most exciting stories coming out of uh, our region in the recent years is the end of the conflict in Ethiopia and Eritrea, which opens the way for greater stability in the Horn. This has not been a conflict which has been managed by foreign countries. It is a conflict which has been managed, resolved, by the countries themselves and in the region. Because often people talk about Africa as if we are not able to manage conflicts, but think about this particular outcome. Second, think about Somalia. The conflict in Somalia has gone for over 30 years. Africa has faced 
failed state. The United Nations could not deploy its troops there because the doctrine I mentioned of 1945 did not allow that. Invitation by two parties, minimal use of force, uh, neutrality. It was the countries in the region, uh, Uganda, Kenya, Ethiopia, Djibouti, and I believe Burundi, under the African Union of Spices, which deployed men and women into Somalia. With the help of the European Union and a few countries through the UN Trust Funds. And thanks to that effort, we begin to see the end of that bloody conflict. It's not yet over. There are serious issues, but we are at the cusp of the state of Somalia coming back from a failed state, completely, purely mediated, dealt with by African countries. So yes, we have challenges in other parts of the world, often because of conflicts imported into Africa, as after the Libyan crisis. But for those conflicts for which we can handle, either through diplomatic efforts or dealing with a socio-economic origin, I believe significant work is underway, and I think the African Union Peace Fund will be a huge uh, contribution. <coughs> okay. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was a splendid speech. And I totally agree with your view that aid policy is probably a term that should be consigned to history. Uh, in terms of a question, can I ask you what you see, foresee as the future specifically for Nigeria? Uh, I missed this. Future for Nigeria. Uh, the future for Nigeria. Oh. <laughs> But, but, but why the future for Nigeria, not the future of the United States? <laughs> no, Nigeria is a great country. I mean, this is uh, Africa's uh, first economy. Uh, they have challenges of their own, uh, economic. But uh, my expectations are that the country is moving forward, not backward. It is, some of you are still very young here, you know, to remember. In the 1960s, uh, two countries in Africa went through bloody civil wars. One was Nigeria, the other was the Congo. But they have recovered. <clears throat> Nigeria has managed through the, uh, the different oil crises. They've managed through its governance. They are now going through an election. Uh, and let us give them support for what they're trying to do. But I'm not here to try to predict the future. But if you want, you and I can engage in this exercise. And we shall do that for many countries around the world. OK, uh, can I have a microphone? Thank you um, for the fascinating talk. My name is Stephanie Copas Campbell. I'm wearing two hats today. One, I'm on the board of the Harold Mitchell Foundation and we're supporting this important event today. So thank you for coming on the behalf of Harold Mitchell and the board. I also do a lot of work in Papua New Guinea and we're starting a fairly significant project to look at the youth bulge and the growing youth bulge in, in PNG and in some specific areas that are conflict prone. So noting that many countries in Africa also have um, a youth bulge, which can be an opportunity and also a challenge. 
Do you have any good models that you can share from your experience in ways that have been effective helping that um, youth bulge to grow into an opportunity um, and not a challenge for the region? Uh, let me sure I understand this. It's about natural resource management. Youth bulge, right. So, <coughs> so we we're all familiar with this uh, uh, thing called uh, the demographic dividend. So, which is that window where the labor force is bigger than retirees or the very young people. Now, we don't know how the Asian region handled this because this region handled it very well. The Southeast Asian region. I don't know about some of these Pacific countries. We know that Latin America mishandled it and they missed it. We in Africa were at the, at the point of getting there and a lot of thinking among our leadership and uh, policymakers is exactly the challenge you are facing in Papua New Guinea. What is it that we can do to make sure the demographic dividend becomes a dividend, not its opposite? And it is clear that it's about the three things. Number one is about the stability of our countries. I was surprised one time visiting Norway and I found uh, at one university a young Somali who emigrated at the age eight and was a nuclear physicist. And I kept saying to myself, I hope this guy will come back one day to, to his country. So it's about the stability of our countries, first of all. The second thing is about how we invest in education, but not education of the past. Because I think the challenge we're having is that we're thinking of, education, of educating the labor of the future using models of the past under which the lack of me were educated. So we have to rethink exactly what it means in, uh, in each of our countries. I'm on the board of something called the African Leadership University, and we are trying to reinvent the university of the future, not the university models which developed in the Middle Ages. The third issue is around technology, especially digital te te technology. How we combine these three, stability, a new form of higher education, or third-level education, and taking advantage of evolving technologies to ensure that the demographic dividend becomes a dividend. Now, I have no recipe for our friends in Papua New Guinea. We're struggling with the same things ourselves, but we're happy to exchange experiences uh, with you. Okay, we have time for one more. Thank you very much for a really inspiring talk. Um, I appreciated your recounting of recent history. In terms of deep history, Australia and Africa were one. And currently, that's reflected in our sharing agroecological zones. My question to you is, moving forward, what are the opportunities um, for looking at climate change mitigation research around, in relation to agricultural research and development? And I say that recognising that Australia already benefits. We have uh, African 
uh, grass species. We have African indigenous livestock here helping our agriculture. But moving forward, how do we work together and what is your vision for that? Thank you. Thank you. This is a really amazing question. I, uh, I'm not sure I have a good answer for you. Tomorrow you can ask uh, Masood. Uh, but what the science says about Africa on climate change is that the eastern part of our continent uh, will get uh, more prone to floods. And the western part of the continent, it will be the opposite. And already we see a sense of that. The southern part of Africa, like Australia, some challenges of water management and unstable uh, climatic development. And you're so right. If there is one area we share, this continent, our continent, is how we can work together on climate change. My very first contact with Australaid, my very first contact with Australaid was to ask them whether we can work together on water management in some countries in Africa. And I must pay homage to them that although we did not have a structured relationship, they are not members, we began some programs together to try and benefit from how this great continent manages its water. And I'm hoping that those kind of programs can be intensified going forward. But also I'm hoping that globally, although you are focused on Indo-Pacific, globally, the continent of Africa and Australia can work together to continue global advocacy for the Paris Agreement. I'm hoping that whichever government is in power in this country, whatever it is that your political divide may suggest, that this is the combat of our generation. It's a combat for our children and grandchildren, and we must continue globally to act together to try and respect the commitments we made in the Paris Agreement, whether it is the financing or the different aspects of, uh, of that agreement. And I'm really hopeful that this and the next government, or whichever government it is, <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not here to interfere in domestic matters, <laughs> that we shall work together, the Africa and Australia can continue to be partners in the combat for, for climate change. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>